0: Welcome to Made in India SLP podcast
1: with your hosts, Kinari and Rabab. Welcome to Made in India SLP, everyone. In today's episode, we will be conversing with Dr. Sumit Rajid Dhar, an experienced clinician, professor and researcher in the field of audiology. So Rabab, can you please go ahead and introduce our guest for today?
0: With great pleasure, I introduce Dr. Dhar, uh, he's an Associate Dean for Research, Professor and Fellow in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northwestern University. Dr. Dhar studies hearing, hearing loss, and hearing healthcare. One major focus of his work is in understanding the physiology and biophysics related to sounds created in the inner ear, which we also know as autoacoustic emissions. He's the Principal Investigator at the Auditory Research Lab at Northwestern University in Illinois. Uh, Dr. Dar received his PhD in Hearing Science with a minor in Neuroscience from Purdue University, Master's of Science in Audiology from Utah State University, and his Bachelor's of Science in Audiology from the University of Bombay. He has published numerous scientific papers in national and international journals, He's been a part of training programs and conferences at regional, national, as well as international meetings. And over the years, Dr. Dhar has been a recipient of various awards, grants, and funding, including for his research in auto-acoustic emissions. Uh, Dr. Dhar, it's such a great pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're so welcome, Rabab and Kennedy. Uh, this is quite a pleasure and you are uh, very kind in your introduction. I, I wish all of what you said was true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, Dr. Dhar, before we even dive into the topic of the day, can you share with our audiences um, what research is being conducted at your auditory research laboratory currently?
2: Sure, um, I have been at Northwestern since 2004 and uh, when I first got to Northwestern, I started this lab primarily to work on cochlear mechanics and autoacoustic emissions. And that work still continues today. I'd say that's about half of what we do. And uh, it has evolved from the from the beginnings of, of deep embedding in, in the biophysics of the cochlea Two more applications of autoacoustic emissions to detect various changes in the cochlea. Um, and later on, we can talk more about that in depth. But the other half that is newer, um, that has been ongoing, I would say for the last decade or so at most, is on um, hearing healthcare delivery. Um, as you are aware, the uptake of hearing loss treatment uh, is abysmal, not just in the US, but the world over. Um, and that, now we understand, leads to uh, various uh, ill effects that are psychosocial, cognitive, and other health-related ill effects that are very undesirable. And there's a whole new area of work that is trying to figure out why uh, the uptake is slow, why the uptake is low, uh, um, and what solutions are needed to change the scenario. So our lab is a part of that movement as well, and we do some work in trying to figure out how to streamline hearing healthcare delivery, r- lower cost, and increase the efficacy of treatment.
0: So Dr. Thar, going off what you said, in many parts of the world, hearing healthcare is viewed more as a discipline to prevent further decline in quality of life, rather than something more of a preventative discipline. So applying the same principles, do you recommend regular urine health checkups for a healthy person? Or do like annual urine checkups, uh, should they focus primarily on high risk populations?
2: In many ways, uh, we already focus on high-risk populations, uh, and also on populations where the impact of hearing loss uh, is accepted to be tremendous or to be be life-changing. I'll give you a couple of extreme examples. Um, So, if you're undergoing chemotherapy for cancer uh, using a drug that is known to be ototoxic, there's no question you're gonna be part of a hearing monitoring program. Here's an example where um, we know this population to be vulnerable to hearing loss and we have done the right thing uh, by incorporating uh, regular hearing screening as part of that treatment regimen. The other example would be newborn hearing screening. Here's a population where The entire population is not at risk for hearing loss. Uh, In fact, there's somewhere between three or five, three to five babies per 1,000 that have uh, congenital hearing loss. Yet we have chosen to screen every one of those uh, children uh, in many parts of the world because the consequences of hearing loss are so life-changing. Consequences of hearing loss such Early in life is are so life changing impacts educational outcomes, social outcomes, economic outcomes, etc so we we recognize the the importance of monitoring hearing and hearing loss, uh, but we so far we 've done so um, in very specific populations. so the question may be well, why not others and uh, you know there 's definitely not one definite answer there 's uh, a myriad of factors uh, including trivial things like cost and convenience and all of that, but also more subtle factors such as um, how we as individuals uh, value hearing loss, how we as individuals can modify our lifestyle, or do modify our lifestyle, do modify our environment to compensate for that hearing loss. A you know, simple example is turning the television up or um, not, not partaking in as much of social activity. Um, and also the other subtler aspect is what are the treatments available uh, to those individuals? Um, and the treatments so far are hearing aids, cochlear implants, and those treatments have come with a lot of social stigma and a lot of psychosocial baggage. So all of this combined, I think has has slowed down the progress of um, whether we can regularize um, hearing screenings for all populations. But you're starting to see a shift and you're starting to see a shift. Uh, maybe if I go across the ages, you're starting to see a shift in schools where just like a um, visual check, uh, a hearing check is encouraged because we know that the hearing loss, even mild hearing loss or unilateral hearing loss, um, has quite a significant effect on educational outcomes. Um, then the other example is in youth or in early adulthood uh, or middle adulthood, hearing evaluations or hearing screenings have been closely linked with occupational hazards of uh, to hearing. So again, when there is a specific need, we have acted accordingly. Perhaps we've not um, done anything about the regular age-related changes in hearing um, so far, because of one, the lack of options uh, for treatment, or in the eyes of folks, lack of options for treatments. And second, uh, the sort of uncertainty about when to do it, how to do it, how often to do it, and those are precisely the questions you're asking. Um, and, and they are the absolute important questions to ask. Um, I'm not sure we know the answers yet, so I'll tell you why uh, we, we can't be sure of these answers. First, if we continue to think that the only treatment for hearing loss we have, um, neural hearing loss we have are hearing aids, then we would want the the process of identification of hearing loss to be catered around when a hearing aid is a viable treatment. That probably doesn't start till the 50s or 60s on average. However, if you fast forward and imagine a world where we have other treatments for hearing loss, pharmaceutical treatments, stem cells, et cetera, et cetera, all of a sudden you do not want to wait till you have a moderately severe severe hearing loss to start that treatment. So that would shift the need to start screening for hearing loss much earlier in life. And I would say if that was the goal, late 30s, early 40s may be a good starting point to establish a good baseline provided there are not other mitigating factors um, such as noise exposure, whatnot. And then comes the question of um, how, how often should this monitoring happen. Um, there we have some data we've published as early as 2012, where uh, we show that the rate of loss of hearing varies quite significantly based on what frequency you are monitoring. So, if you're monitoring a high frequency like 14 or 16 kilohertz, much of the change in hearing happens between say 25 years old and 45 years old. Um, But if you're monitoring at 8 kilohertz or 6 kilohertz, um, you would see those changes in the 40s on, so 45 on. So um, because we can't routinely monitor those high frequencies in our clinics yet, we're kind of forced to wait till the change comes to us in, in the frequencies we're used to. Uh, used to evaluating. However, if if the new treatments that I talked about are to be a reality, we'll have to shift where our um, focus is and go to the higher frequencies, especially for age-related hearing loss. And there, I would say the frequency of evaluation probably will vary starting out with longer breaks between tests, say three to five years. But then uh, once a shift is detected, Um, speeding up the frequency of of these evaluations, probably to an annual evaluation. Again, all of this is sort of informed conjecture on my part based on work we've done, others have done, and uh, and definitely before anybody agrees to these uh, new standards, um, a lot of work has to be done to prove that this is indeed the most efficacious, most cost-effective way to move forward.
1: Right. I totally understand when you say that, like we're doing all the research, but we still have to get together and reach that one meeting point where, where we can start implementing it and we can show how effective it is. So globally, there is this great initiative of universal newborn hearing screening. However, um, it isn't necessarily being implemented in many countries across the world. But now we know that early identification and intervention of hearing loss have a significant impact on the life of an individual with hearing loss. So coming to autoacoustic emissions testing, how do we ensure that we get good results whenever we do the OAE screenings? Also, um, what does the universal uh, newborn hearing screening protocol look like in the state of Illinois, where you reside?
2: All very good questions. Um, So, let's let's do the easy thing first, which is what is the protocol Um, in Illinois? uh, Probably like the rest of the United States, um, institutions are free to choose. Uh, their protocol within some constraints. So, uh, the common, uh, the most common um, way for screening newborns is through automated ABR, uh, and then the autoacoustic emissions are the other way of um, of screening newborns. Uh, most data point to the greatest success, the greatest accuracy when both are used. And you can understand why that is the case. One is more a measure of peripheral hearing, the other more a measure of the neural response to sound. And in combinations, they give you the greatest coverage of the auditory system. However, that adds time, cost, etc. So, uh, most institutions decide to use one or the other at the first screening. and then uh, uh, the, both of them are are quite successful are successful enough that using just one um, is is good enough, so to speak. and then um, the the other part of your question uh, was you know how how successful is it or um, how effective it is So that is not just dependent on the test we use um, or the combination of tests we use, because ultimately we will have to decide whether a universal newborn screening hearing program is successful or not based on the outcomes. And the outcomes involve a successful follow-up when a follow-up is needed and a successful initiation of treatment when treatment is needed within a certain a fixed period of time, and right now it's one, three, six. Uh, that is, uh, you know, first screen within the first month. Um, second, if you need a second evaluation within three months, and then initiation of the treatment process at six months or before. Um, and to to be to make that whole thing successful what's important is not just that first test. What is important is the entire system that is built around that test. So the protocol, when, when we say, what is the protocol? The protocol should be thought of as that first test choices that we make, so what we use for the test or not. Then the reporting system for uh, passes and referrals into some kind of a central database then a follow-up system where the families and are, are helped uh, to navigate the system to, to make a, an appointment for the next evaluation, and then an appointment for the, uh, for the initiation of treatment, and then continuous follow-up to make sure that no one's dropping through the cracks. So that, in my mind, when you say protocol, it involves all of that um, and um, and that is what makes a program successful, not just the right choice of which test and um, to use at the first first uh, instance of screening. Uh, most places use transient emissions uh, or click evoked emissions, and that is just fine. Um, the there are some logistical or or mechanical factors that probably play a big role, Uh, any bigger role than whether you use transients or DPs or whatnot. And that is state of the child, um, how much physiological noise um, the child is making. So the ability of the tester to get the child to a calm state where you can record or emissions commissions above muscle noise and other physiological noise. Second, What's in the ear canal, uh, as you might already know uh, uh, the greatest source false na- false positives in nototo emissions or or ABRS for example, for that matter is um, not having a not not having a clear ear canal to conduct the test so that is the issue of timing that is the issue of um, figuring out when a test should be done and or not should not be done and then the last and very important um, factor to consider is the fit of the probe in the ear canal um, you know NICUs or or any other um, Nursery is a noisy place, and when there is not a good fit, a tight seal of the probe in the ear canal, you allow a lot of environmental sound to creep into the ear canal picked up by the microphone and contaminate the recording so um, if there's one sort of procedural thing that the tester can do is to ensure that you have a very 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 good fit of the probe in the ear canal uh, and you know today 's systems uh, will not allow you to move forward with the test unless they detect a good fit, but, you know, where that threshold is of what is a good fit, what is not, uh, varies between instruments. So, you can't replace a well-trained clinician in that aspect where they can see the noise floor fluctuating or the low-frequency noise floor being higher than they're used to seeing and knowing that there's a problem with the fit and correcting it before they move on. Hope that answers your question.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, The universal um, newborn hearing screening is something that's becoming commonplace practice in India. So I'm glad we spoke about that topic and just touching about what a screening protocol would look like. But coming to the topic of adult hearing, different countries in the world have come up with different methods that work well for the population that they have for hearing screening or assessment. Uh, Dr. Dar, what is your take on self-testing of urine loss?
2: Uh <laughs> That's again a very <laughs> timely question, and uh, the answer is very simple. It's as mm-hmm. good as the method that you use, right? And and in that, the there is this is an answer full of hope, because um, I believe that methods will get better instrumentation will get better. And therefore, um, the outcome of these, the accuracy of these tests will get better. Now, you, you will know that there are some tests that have found really widespread acceptance. And one example is the digits in noise test that can be delivered over the telephone, where you dial a number and you hear a digit between one through nine. Um, that is embedded in noise, and you just hit the on your keypad, you hit the number that you hear, and based on whether you're right or wrong, the test can dynamically make it harder or easier for you by changing the level of the noise. Uh, Many advantages to this kind of a test, um, it doesn't depend on absolute calibration of signal level, because you are what you're measuring is the the perception in a specific signal to noise ratio so the absolute level doesn't matter as much as long as the signal's audible enough second automatic interpretation of the test is easy because you're just detecting a digit press and not having to interpret whether the words were repeated correctly or, or a sentence was repeated correctly. And third, uh, it can be easily used in many, 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 many languages, right? So you don't have to go through the tremendously difficult task of translating tests, standardizing them, finding norms, etc. So that's a good example of something that is catching traction. Um, Although there is, it's not, we're not home yet because there are already um, some literature, there is already some literature suggesting that your native language or your first language has some influence on how you respond to even this test, which is just digits. So, for example, if you do this in England, um, there are people from Um, immigrants from all nations, they all speak English well enough to take the test, but the results are influenced by when they started speaking English and whether um, English is their first language or not. So even that, uh, there are still some nuances to to fix, but that's, uh, uh, you know, movement in the right direction. I am pretty sure that we'll see more and more clever implementations like this, and um, these will, um, will get more and more accurate results to us. Now, I have to um, finish this answer by saying, by saying that these kinds of tests should not be seen as a threat to audiology. That would be a a rather unfortunate way to look at it. To me, these tests are essentially a gateway to funnel the people that need our help the most to us and and, and encourage people who need our help to come to us and also not fill our calendars with people who don't need our help. So to me, this is a, a great, filtering mechanism so that audiologists can improve their impact on society.
1: So last night, I just Googled how to take quick self-test for hearing screening. I went on this Hearing Aid Brands website and they did a quick screening on me using the same digits and noise test. I mean, they told me I didn't need any further audiological assessment. I mean, I'm sure they can make this test better for the audiences. But one thing I noticed was they didn't ask me to set my volume on the speaker at a particular level. So it was turned all the way up. So I don't know if that was helping me too during the test. I took it. It was pretty easy. And it's something I can all take. Yeah.
2: So the volume level, unless your speakers are distorting because are the limit of the of the internal amplifier of the speakers um, should not matter because both the the digits and the background noise are affected by the volume the same way so the signal to noise ratio should not change provided, again, there's not something weird going on with your sound system. And that is, that is, in effect, one of the beauties of a test like this, where you don't have to worry so much about calibration. But I, I don't mean to say that the sound system doesn't matter. So for example, um, if the uh, the sound system you're using has uh, some weird filtering, frequency filtering, uh, you can imagine a uh, like complicated scenario where, um, you know, part of the digit is is not audible, but the noise is still audible. The effective signal noise ratio is changed, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, those are kind of complicated situations. O- overall, um, this is a good way of, of um, going beyond the limitation of having to set accurate calibration.
0: Hmm. I, I think I will say this, that this is such an amazing initiative, especially even thinking about it from an indian perspective almost everybody has a cell phone now so at least they have access to this assessment or service and if there is a need for further rehabilitation or assessment they can go ahead and find the correct resources so absolutely cool. so
2: so i will encourage you and whoever the three other people who listen to this podcast to, to go look at um, South Africa. They have a national movement uh, promoting this test. They have been able to um, recruit celebrities to advertise them themselves taking the test. Uh, and, and it's quite a national movement and, and, and something like that is what is necessary.
0: Yes, I will. I will make sure I look for it and at least tell three of my friends for sure. So hopefully that'll help.
1: Okay, so um, I have a next question. Actually, it's a two part question. So from your perspective, what does the future of hearing health look like? And also as a researcher, clinician and an educator, you've seen like um, the world from the both sides. So how how should programs prepare the students better for like real world application? What's your take on this?
2: Um, well, I mean, that's a great, great, great question. Like all your questions are very, very well thought out. Uh, and the answers to the two parts of your question are connected, right? So you know, if we could figure out what the future of hearing healthcare looks like, and it's more more about what the future of hearing healthcare should look like rather than what it will look like, as no one really knows what will happen. Um, primarily because there are healthcare is manpower, woman power, um, and. Um, policy, government, so many things uh, influence what ends up looking like healthcare. So uh, I probably am, am only qualified, slightly qualified to, to, to speak about it from a science perspective. And that is pretty clear. So, um, you know, there are, we do very, very well already on Uh, a couple of areas. First, you know, newborn hearing loss or early childhood hearing loss. Um, Cochlear implants are the most successful neural prosthesis in the history of mankind. Um, and, And that I suspect will continue, but in parallel, uh, as we understand genetics more, as we understand genetic medicine more, um, we'll start to find other solutions for hearing losses that are um, that are caused by single genes. Now, unfortunately, hearing loss is is much more complicated than other um, diseases or conditions that are driven by a by one or just a handful of genes, and you know, breast cancer is an example where we know the genes that that uh, drive the condition. You can screen for them early in life, and you can take preventive action, or you can at least monitor yourself if if you fall in a high risk category. But uh, there are more than today. I mean, every time I look, there's more genes uh, that are associated with hearing loss. they are well over, maybe close to 150 now um, that. Uh, have been associated with hearing loss. Uh, And the other complicating part of it is all of them put together don't describe more than, say, 20% at most of hearing loss as we know it. So yeah, there are many, many genes involved, but there are other causes of hearing loss that are not driven by these genetic conditions. So, So yes, genetics will be important, but not the answer to every kind of hearing loss. Um, great investments are being made in pharmacological treatments for uh, tissue regeneration, be it neural tissue, be it um, sensory tissue in, in the cochlea, um, and, and that is bound to move forward. So that will be part of our, of our um, future. I also think that none of these New technologies, if you want to call all of them technologies will work the best in isolation. So there will still be need for things that we call oral rehabilitation or things of that nature. And there, we will see continued improvement gamification, more engagement understanding the neural basis, or driving that kind of treatment based on um, monitoring the changes in, in neural response to sound. Um, so that's another area that's um, the future for us. Um, and all of this combined, Uh, to me, paints a picture that starts with prevention and then goes on to very, very accurate diagnosis of site of lesion, kind of lesion, much more than we are able to do now, and then a much more differentiated field of treatment um, that is um, not monolithic in that it's not just amplification and there's uh, many other options. So if that is indeed our future, how do we prepare uh, the future workforce? Um, and that answer becomes much simpler. So they would have the future audiologist would have to be well conversant on, on all of these aspects. Uh, neural processing, um, very fine diagnostics, uh, multitude of treatment options, um, and then sort of a overall um, treatment that encompasses psychosocial well-being as well as uh, treatment for the specific hearing loss. And, you know, programs are heading in that direction because all of medicine is heading in that direction where patient-centric care, um, more sort of 360 degree care uh, in collaboration with other professions uh, is much more the norm than, than it has been ever before. So uh, in many ways, we are, we are headed in the right direction. The specifics are being injected as we make new discoveries and it becomes clear what indeed are going to be viable options for uh, diagnostics and treatment.
0: I, I really like how you say that, Dr. Dhar, how the roadways from prevention to accurate diagnosis. Um, I feel like it gives us hope and all this information gives us hope about eventual successes and greater patient-centric care. We are almost ready to wrap up. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners? Maybe some resources for student clinicians as well as fellow practicing clinicians to enhance their skill services.
2: Well, so um, you know, information is um, is exponentially easier to find and use every day, uh, thanks to um, this connected world and uh, people are uh, easy, easier and easier to find and connect with um, in today's world. So there we have um, an opportunity for today's clinicians and students to um, sort of be open to uh, much more uh, cutting edge, diverse set of information um, than we have been in the past. But with that comes this other uh, sort of, I wouldn't call it danger, but the other slippery slope, which is there's a lot of information that is premature or uh, sometimes plain not correct. So I think the one of the challenges for all of us, not just students or, or, or starting clinicians or anybody, for all of us is to develop a good sense of what to believe, uh, how to believe it, and how to verify information. So, if if I can say that one challenge for all of us, um, what's the main challenge for all of us? I, I'd say the main challenge for all of us is to collectively develop a sense of how to separate um, evidence from opinion, how to separate opinion that is based on some science to opinion that um, is for the sake of promoting something else, uh, and then pursue the the avenues of knowledge that are found to be uh, accurate and useful. And then I'll I'll just end by saying that I am so optimistic about how, uh, not just hearing healthcare uh, for the professionals will shape up in the future, but also how much more effective hearing healthcare will be for those who need it. And I am hopeful because of people like you too, uh, f- because of this next generation of, of um, professional scientists, students who are so curious, who are so entrepreneurial and who are driven to seek and disseminate information uh, and then act on that information in a very, very, um, positive way. And, you know, a lot of times when I say that um, I I am misinterpreted to to mean, well, everybody should be altruistic and this is a service profession and all that. It is, all that is true, but none of this should happen or none of this necessarily has to happen without you and other professionals also seeking a satisfying, fulfilling, and financially rewarding uh, career. I, do, I sincerely believe they can go hand in hand. Uh, things go off kilter when uh, one places one uh, either the financial motivation um, above the above the other, which is the motivation to serve or the other way around. So as long as we maintain this balance of let 's take care of ourselves but also know that we are here to take care of the people who need our help, um, we will be fine. You guys are. Um, you know, so much far farther ahead than I was when I was starting out. You know, so much more. You uh, understand things so much faster, and and you act on it so 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 much better than uh, me or my generation did. That uh, things are bound to get better.
0: Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. I think we try, right, Kinnery? Yeah, we are trying.
1: Um, Thank you for summarizing and sharing that message. There there can be a balance between both uh, helping somebody and helping yourself too. So thank you so much for your time today and being here with us. We've enjoyed this discussion and we're so sure that our listeners will as well.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Dhar. I really liked how you summarized it all. And just like you we are hopeful too.
2: Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, stay safe. And uh, soon we'll be back to uh, being in, in under normal circumstances.
0: Thanks for <laughs> joining us today. And we are so grateful for all the support we've received. And can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Thank you. See you soon.